Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. My guest this week is the Zurich-based landscape architect, Robin Winokran, who practices under her own name, but was also co-founder of Studio Volcan, where she was partner from 2014 to 2020. I met with Winogrand in London in May of 2023, and instead of recording indoors, we took a walk through Bunhill Fields, a former burial ground near Old Street, full of tombstones and towering plane trees. It made sense to be outside with Winogrand, whose work invites us, in different ways, to surrender to our own direct experience of natural phenomena. Winogrand places herself firmly in a tradition of phenomenology. As a student, she was drawn to figures like Johanny Palasma and Christian Norberg Schultz, and over time, she began to frame her practice as one in search of what she calls geographical reenchantment, a term she borrowed from the social geographer Alistair Bonnet, which for her describes a search for unique and specific experience in the context of increasingly generic urban spaces. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. I mean, maybe we could just start with where you're from. Okay. I'm from Chicago. My grandparents lived in the Mies van der Rohe 900 Lakeshore Drive. And so I was exposed to pretty remarkable architecture very, very young. And I think even today I could draw every detail of glass and steel and light and space. Because it's that strong and it affects you somehow in such a strong way. Um, so I always intended to become an artist, a sculptor, and I followed the contemporary sculpture world, which was then starting to work in outdoor space, in urban space, and in the landscape quite closely. And my friends were starving artists and said, don't do it, you have to, we're all learning computer programming to survive, and I thought I won't manage that, to be creative on the side, as a sidekick. So I realized, well, if um, I want to be working under the open sky, I could become a landscape architect. And it just happened that while I was studying urban design, um, the two main professors, one was an architect urban planner and the other an artist. And we studied a lot about contemporary art and there was a lot of phenomenology in it. And one was a good friend of Robert Irwin, the light and space artist. And he would come visit the school. And I was super young, I started college at 16, and I was super young and I was um, absolutely fixed on this um, questions of perception, both philosophically and also spatially, in terms of perception. And so I became very interested in the outdoor space and perception. And then I decided, okay, I'll become a landscape architect and I'll try to weave these thoughts into that. And of course, that took me a couple of decades then. I mean, I'm happy I became, I'm very happy I became a landscape architect because I actually became very concerned about social issues and urban space and social space. And so I, but it takes a couple of decades to command your means mm -hmm. to do that. And so I think it's just in the last years that's kind of come round circle. 
That's so interesting, this link to Robert Irwin, who I was introduced to, or at least whose ideas I was introduced to through this book, Seeing is Forgetting the yes. Name of the Thing One Sees. Yes, yes. I mean, it's the light and space movement in California. Yeah. Um, this is in the, what, the 60s? 60s. Yeah. Which to me, it seems like a good foundation for a certain approach to architecture. And so I'm wondering, and if you think of practices like Stephen Hall, for example, mm. or Johanny yeah, Plasma, the click, so these, yeah, this atmospheric clique you talk about, who in a way you could imagine having a strong affection for artists like Irwin. Um, so the question for me is, why landscape architecture? Um, that's an interesting point about the architecture. I've, yes, I grew up in the city of Franklin Wright and other great architects and and I began in studying architecture and what I found was I didn't choose to have that discipline with the entire structural elements and the entire engineering not because I wasn't interested in it because I'm a great fan of architecture uh, but because I thought if I do open space I can somehow go more into a world that's somewhere between drifting and a dreaminess or a state, an inner state that I find fascinating and there'll be less constraints. And I was fascinated by the power of natural materials. That's how I got to landscape architecture. Just the sky, the phenomena of the sky, the light changing, the phenomena of the voices of nature, of stone, of water. And I talk about that, I'll even talk about it briefly today, but I talk about it in my lectures and in all of my projects. I try to draw out the strongest possible voice of nature I can because I'm interested in places that are not generic, that are site-specific, but also that have the ability to go under our skin. And nature has that power. So if I can activate all the possible voices of these natural materials in a place, uh, I'll bring human beings closer to nature, closer to nature in themselves. Um, I think it's Gary Snyder, the ecological theorist, who talks about the green man in us. It's, a, it's an archaic voice in us that's looking for that, which is why these generic developments, you know, the investor developments that promote green, it's faceless, it's exchangeable, it's non-memorable. It's just, um, that cannot be the voice of landscape architecture. So I'm actually searching within this world of phenomenology and atmosphere, which are two of my strongest uh, interests, um, looking for ways to bring that out in very specific and unexpected projects and not these things you've already experienced 25 or 100 times. When you're talking about giving a voice to landscape, you also mention in, in a lot of your lectures and interviews this idea of advocating for landscape architecture. And it seems like part of your practice is interested in giving voice to landscape. I wonder if you could expand on that, what that means exactly. Yeah. I, um, I would like to and I also would not like to mix uh, the voice of landscape with the voice of landscape architecture. Of course. They're two separate things. Um, I try not to be interested in the disciplines. Someone said to me, I just gave a lecture that um, a group of art historians interested in landscape and 
in a conference and, and a woman came up to me afterwards, a young woman who's a professor, and she said, your work is art. Why don't you just call yourself an artist? You're doing artwork. And I said, you know, I'm, first I'm afraid that I'll be attacked by the artists, but there's so many people who are interested in these disciplines. And I'm actually only interested in one thing, and that is the power of place to move us, to make meaningful, relevant, contemporary um, reflections about the kinds of places we live in and how we, how we live in the world. I and mean, if you want to go to Heidegger or something, how we, to be. Being something in the like world. This. Yes, being, dwelling <laughs> in the world. Um, and so I'm an advocate for specific and powerful dwelling experiences. And um, it is that when you look, let's take London as an example, or um, take the landscape or the city as an example. There's a civic, you know, the, the civic movement of civic architecture where you'd have an, the train station would become a place and the library would become a place, like a place of movement, a place of knowledge. Uh, maybe Symphony Hall would become a place of, of music or performance. And the city would be structured with different kinds of special places that had a special language. And I find it really dramatic that landscape has all these functional needs. You know, someone saying, here's how we have to do it to be recreational, here's how we have to do it to be ecological, here's how we have to do it to um, be financially viable, to be for agricultural land, for infrastructure, and they all have a voice in determining the face of the landscape. So the, the, the places we experience are determined by all these needs, but because the landscape doesn't have its own voice, there's no one who's advocating how can this place be a viable place at all. And in the end, and I don't mean this in an esoteric way, but in the end, human beings dwell. Human beings experience themselves through the places they're in. So if we ignore that in an, and just take over, you know, generic investor projects and everything becomes functional, how shall we create city? And I mean that in a really in the biggest sense of the word city, mm. civic life. It brings me to this question about what you've identified as three layers of landscape. One is the natural, one is the cultural, and then there's this much less frequently acknowledged one, which you define as the imaginary. Can you, first of all, elaborate on what the imaginary layer of landscape is, what that means precisely? I can. I guess it's not quite, maybe the word imaginary isn't, <laughs> it's tricky with this vocabulary. I guess it's the, if you say the natural, the cultural, it would be the imaginative uh, layer. And um, it's based on the scheme that John Dixon Hunt, as a landscape theorist, proposed. It's not because I'm theoretical, not at all. What I'm about to say is completely down to earth. But somehow we have to try to understand what we're dealing with. When you're designing a space, you have to know what are your means, what's your understanding, what's your orientation within this complex world. So John Dixon Hunt made a scheme um, where he proposed the three natures. And the first layer, the lowest layer, was natural nature. The second, cultural nature, that's what human beings do with nature. And the third, gardens, because their purpose was to not be functional, but to be aesthetic. But in my work, I became more and more convinced, or understood, let's say, more and more, that 
landscape is not something objective outside of us. It's the marriage between our inner optic and our inner emotions and something, out, a place outside of us. There's this quote I want to read from Andrea Wolf, who wrote about Humboldt and the invention of nature. Uh, this is a quote you've read out in a few of your lectures. Um, so, for a scientist like Humboldt, who is trying to understand nature, the dualism between the external and internal world was the most important question. Humans were like citizens of two worlds, occupying both. Tell me more about that quotation and how it maybe illuminates this idea of the imaginary when we talk about landscape. We cannot see any place around us without the inside determining which glasses we have on. And what I find so amazing about landscape, which is why I find landscape architecture so amazing, the potential is just profound, is buildings always have functions. They always are a bank or a housing or something. They have lifts and you get a program and you have to have like, you know, five office spaces and the whatever, the lobby and, the, and it's all like divided up like that. And landscape has this hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of year old tradition of being a place of desire or a place of embodied experience, a place of pleasure and le leisure. And so we have, and these are very serious tasks. This is a very serious program. Leisure is a serious thing. Pleasure is a serious thing. And uh, landscape has that ability, but it only has that ability if we imbue it with that ability. So I, I somehow in my mind, landscape are animated things. You know, trees are an animated things, spaces, light is, these are all have voices. And if we imbue space with all of these qualities, it has the ability, I call it to be a catalyst of the imagination. These spaces are, have the ability to be catalysts of our imaginations. And in the broader sense, that means uh, desire, um, wishfulness, reflection, all these states that are really, really important to being human. And if we don't do that, then let's say if everything's predefined, if they're not spaces of imagination, if everything's predefined, this path leads from A to B. So when I'm walking, I'm on my iPhone and I'm walking from A to B. We stay in this very rational state and we miss out increasingly, and cities are increasingly becoming that, we miss out increasingly on the other aspects which make life um, wondrous. There's a fabulous quote, I think the guy's name is Santayana. Um, we will not, we shall not die from lack of wonders, but from lack of wonder. to the next question, which is about the title of a studio you tied at Harvard a couple of years ago, or last year, and also a title of, of your lectures, which is In Search of a Geographical Reenchantment. I wondered if you could articulate that for me. 
I tripped across this book in this, the bookshop on the corner in Zurich called Unruly Places, and it's by a British sociogeographer named Alistair Bonnet, who I've in the meantime contacted. Um, and he uses, in he argues about the banality of our built world and how we need, we need places that disrupt our expectations. We need places that, um, that touch us, that, that are more raw, that aren't that sort of generic facelessness. And in passing in his book, he uses two expressions that made the light bulb go off in my head. And one is geographical re-enchantment and the other is the geography of imagination. And when I read them, I thought maybe that describes quite well what I've been looking for for quite a long time. So I'd say that the search for geographical re-enchantment isn't about nostalgia, it's not about prettiness, it's not about being emotional. It's actually a search using my project as concrete testing grounds to suss out the poten poetic potential of a site with the ability to fascinate and engage to defy our expectations to create memorable and specific places which are able to serve as catalysts of our imagination. And I mean, the kinds of spaces that you are intervening in or designing for are arguably the most unenchanting spaces one could imagine. <laughs> most of my projects in Switzerland, because most of Switzerland is the periphery, in a state of periphery, and in, there's a Swiss-German word for that, the aglo, the agglomeration, yes. so we always talk about the aglo. And almost all of my projects have been there in Switzerland. And so those kind of places are really, really tough because you're surrounded by single-family housing, multi-family housing, traffic arteries, schools, sports fields. Um, everything you ever kind of didn't want is there. And at some point you give up and you say, well, okay, I'm going to start working with this. This is friction. This is the contemporary landscape. This is society. This has friction, this has contradictions, this has paradoxes. How could I start to use this to become part of the expression I'm looking for? And I mean, you've worked um, on a park near Zurich Airport, as well as the roof of a highway tunnel. This is the Museum of Natural History at St. Gallen. These are equally, in a way, unremarkable and overlooked contemporary environments that um, seem to have their own approach to re-enchantment, which uh, in a way is about um, embedding narrative in the place. I mean, if we look at the Museum of Natural History first, there's some relationship between the path you construct as a landscape architect and the story that that path tells. So, I mean, Let's talk about this other approach, this overlaying of narrative on a, on a formerly barren and very thin landscape. How do you thicken that with stories of, um, of the history of, of our environment? I never said I'm going to be a use narrative. I never looked for that. And I found out in the meantime that it's quite an overused expression and I'm almost afraid of it, actually. Uh -huh because a lot of people use it in a way that leads to products that I don't think uh, have a depth that one should be and could be reaching in projects. Mm -hmm. So there are all kind of narratives out there. Um, but I certainly do work that way. And I found it extremely, extremely potent tool. And the challenge of the Museum of Natural History was 
was really like almost like a running, it was like a gag or something like, oh, this is very funny. This is a cow pasture surrounded by all the junk of a periphery, you know, from service industry to loud traffic arteries to all, all the stuff. And how, like the, the challenge was how on earth can you make a, a park, it was a fairly small park, a museum's park where the visitors can let go and drift and fall into the depth and profoundness of natural history as a topic with all this junk around them. So, and then even the biggest, like the, what do we in German, they'd say the dot on the eye would be that you're on top of a highway tunnel and you know it. So it was somehow such a paradox, like all the paradox and contradictions I could ever want on my plate. I found three means, design means, that allowed me to let the people have an immersive experience. And one was to um, control the edges with vegetation and to plant a lot of trees so that the trees immediately immerse us in a space, which allows you to then make embed the park under these trees and within these trees and between these trees so you've already gotten the people to focus on that space and to get a bit lost and you can filter out a lot of the context. The second one is um, I was trying to figure out whether to make the path out of natural stone or concrete and I was going to some stone quarries and there were all this beautiful um, rubble left from the stone quarry and I was asking how much that would cost and they said you can kind of have it for free because it's just the rubble. And I thought, well, isn't that amazing? If I cover the entire park with it, people can walk wherever they want. They don't follow paths. And again, these, when I give quotes or whatever, I don't study and then do the design work. I do the design work and then I trip across people and I say, wow, that's what I was doing. So the French phenomenologist Maurice Merleau-Ponty, he refers to participative perception. And that's when you engage in your own act of perceiving. And that is a state that's like embodied experience. Johanny Palasma would say, whatever, it's this embodied experience we have. So I thought, okay, if you can walk anywhere in the park and trip across all this material I'm gonna put in the park, you'll be in a state of engaged perception and not in this half sleepy one where you're looking at your phone and walking from A to B. So that's cool. So I got all this, covered the entire park with this stone. And the third layer, let's say trick, I did, and that the design is much more complex than all this, but these are just the three basic design tools, is I was thinking about stepping stones in a garden. And stepping stones are usually about 30 centimeters in size, but they've been around for thousands of years. And they've been around thousands of years in gardens because they do something. They put us in the state of embodied experience. In the moment where you're focused on your feet trying to find the stones, you're you come out of your rational mind again. So you're in your body, and you're in your body walking through space. And I took that principle and turned it into stepping stones that are between two and a half and seven and a half meters in size. So that you're, it's like a jumbo, I mean there's always kind of a humor behind I guess what I'm doing, but it's these jumbo jumbo stepping stones. And then what I did is I took all the information I wanted to take to, in the storytelling about natural history and use this these stepping stones and this place for um, objects and clues to nature which are strewn throughout this space. Strewn? Strewn, strewn throughout the place. And you trip across them. So you're on your own kind of little magical tour there tripping across things that actually took place there. There were um, not dinosaurs but saurian there. You trip across fossils, you trip across giant quotes, you trip across 
um, all kinds of storytelling and information, but you're embedded in this place. Mm. I love this, not really metaphor, this little literal description of how one moves through the scheme, which is to trip through it. <laughs> that um, on the one hand, there's all kinds of fantastical associations we have with tripping, but more importantly, I think, it has to do with friction. It has to do with the introduction of a certain kind of obstacle into our environments, which takes us out of um, a state of mind that's all too common today, which is one of distraction, and into a state of mind that is focused, as you say, on embodied experience. What do you make of digital culture and its influence on the way we encounter our landscape today? It's a very interesting question and a very complex question um, because we know the ups and sides and downsides of the digital world in the meantime. No? Uh, people are exposed to many landscapes they'll never be able to go to physically. You have a much broader sense of the world. Um, you could go there any time. A four-year-old can tell you what it looks like in the savannah of Africa. I mean, there are all these kind of remarkable things that have happened. On the other side, I guess I'm very attached to this world of embodied experience as something that human being needs. And I do hope, I, I actually feel very, I don't know if I feel optimistic, uh, the whole world of yoga. I mean, our grandparents did not do yoga. You know, our whole our generations are privileged with a whole understanding of the body and meditation and all these tools we have to get to our bodies, which have showed up and counterbalance, helped to counterbalance the digital world. But I do really, really know, and it's not even my belief. I know, and COVID showed us all that walking in outdoor space or sitting in outdoor space cannot be compared to anything else. And they know there's been the, the great boom of neurosciences in the last decades where they've been able to study and know that the color green relaxes the entire human nervous system, or the color blue, water, the sound of water. We know those things now. We used to just you know, think them. And so I think it's generally understood now that we need these open spaces and that they provide us with something that just can't be replaced with anything else. And so I think there's a common knowledge that's really right on the track. And I am very concerned, however, about the younger generations that almost don't take a step without the phone in the hand, that don't have a particular need to be in the place they're in, or they're always in three places at once. And I don't you know, you always wonder, like every generation said they're concerned about the next generation or it's, you know, the world's gone to pot and you think, gosh, I don't want to be one of them. So I just have to believe that human nature will bring itself back to human nature. We were in an office not too long ago where there was no evidence of um, analog means of design. No models, very few pencils and pens even. It was all on the screen. So what tools do you use? What tools do you think through landscape with? I think the tool that I use first and foremost to design is being on site, is 
putting my body in that space and opening up all my antennas to uh, grasp and experience as much information as possible about that place. And then that place starts to grow inside of me and my imagination, my associations and my knowledge. And I'm super functionally oriented. I take in all the functions. Um, all the user groups from the two-year-old to the 92-year-old, I, I go through all of that in my mind and I walk the space and it kind of starts something inside that's all by itself, but is the most integrated way of approaching design. And I would basically call that intuition and I am sure that, and I'm not alone in this either, intuition is the most intelligent tool we have as a human being. It combines knowledge, experience, sensation, um, visions. It just combines it all. And my intuition starts to work the best on site. I know this sounds really silly. I'm not at all esoterically <laughs> oriented, but I, I always work with hand sketches, always. And I work with the plans, and I work with the photos, and I work with the site experience. And and things start to emerge. I mean, it seems like a lot of the design decisions then must be governed by introspection and this heightened sense of self-awareness in a way, awareness of one's own perception, of one's own embodied experience. Could you talk a bit about Christian Norberg Scholz and this idea of propositional design? Uh, prepositions. Prepositional, sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's like my English. Kind of. um, uh, Christian Norbert Schultz is widely spread. Many people know his, his writings. I had the great fortune that he was the mentor of one of the professors at my school where I studied urban design. He talks about this in his introduction to Genis Loki, which is probably a 40-page introduction or something. And he talks about how we experience place. It's, the book in Isloki is about three cities. And he talks, his, pre, his introduction is about how we experience place. City, architecture, everything. And he very simply says, in a grammatical structure, objects, nouns, are used to describe things and prepositions describe our relationship to things. And so he has this beautiful photo of a bridge. Does he have a photo? Did I make that up? Or I imagined it. He has a beautiful example of a bridge and the bridge connecting two shores. And his example is I'm going over the water. I'm going, I'm on one side of the river, I'm going over the water, and I'm going to the other side. So the bridge has a shape, which uh, you can find in Japanese gardens or in, in Croatia or wherever, in many places, where you have the experience of going up and over the water and going down and landing on the other side. And I still use this in many of my lectures. And so I thought about that and I thought, I mean, that's revolutionary to me because now when I design, and for the last um, decades, I don't formally sit around and talk about it, but I have won competitions using this vocabulary because that's what we do. You and I right now are sitting along the park, at the edge of the park. We're looking across the park. We can walk through the space. We can walk along the space. We can walk into the space. And they all have different 
ways of being designed so that your body is experiencing all these different things. If our bodies go up 30 centimeters, it's a whole other experience than if we go down 30 centimeters or if we stay on a flat plane. So all of a sudden, all these prepositions became an incredible approach to, for me to understand, going back to the quote from Andrea Wolf or other quotes from Borges that I use or Louis Kahn, how we experience space. And when you design like that, you really start to understand the human psyche at a very archaic level. A very, it's really like a child, the way child experience space. And that is a very, very powerful design tool that I've used now for quite a long time. Robin, thank you so much. Scaffold is a podcast from the Architecture Foundation. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word on social media and leave a rating on iTunes. Thanks to Robin Winogrand. Special thanks to Judith Losing. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn. And thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next time.